Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. All right, let me invite you to have a seat just for a little while. I want to welcome you here to worship here at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are growing deep roots to share God's love. My name is David Lesner. I am one of the pastors here. I serve as the lead pastor, um, and it's really exciting that you chose to be in worship here today so we can honor God together, we can be excited about God together, and we can receive what God has for us as well. Sometime during the worship, I invite you to register your attendance. I see some of you already scanning the QR code on the screen or in the seat back pocket. There's also the registration pads that you can um, slide across uh, to your neighbor and, and register by pen and paper. And I invite you to kind of look at the names and maybe, you know, uh, greet that person afterward and get to know them a little bit more. Um, so today we are going to be finishing up our sermon series, Postcards from Babylon, uh, looking at what is a community's, what is our church's role in the community. And um, as I go to read the scripture, I'll tell you, I was joking with the earlier service that uh, most of us would just prefer that Jeremiah 29 end at verse 14, because then you would get the, for I know the future I have for you, a future with hope and promise and all of the good things that God has. But we wouldn't be um, authentic to the scripture and the entire message of Jeremiah if we didn't keep going into verses 16 through 19. And so uh, let me read for you our scripture for today, and then we'll sing our final song. So this is from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 16 through 19. It says, Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who live in this city, your kinsfolk who did not go out with you into exile, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am going to let loose on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like rotten figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be an object of cursing and horror and hissing and derision among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not heed my words, says the Lord, when I persistently sent to you my servants the prophets, but they would not listen says the Lord. This is the word of God for all of God's people. Let us say, thanks be to God. Let's stand up and sing. So we went from a scripture verse in which God is going to chase people with sword, pestilence, and famine to the song, I will sing of the goodness of God. Is anybody else confused here? Um, I, I want to make sure, because I always have this fear, like I had this conversation with a person about a month or two ago where um, I was just asking them on, on their perspective, what is it that we could do more of or what is it we could change about church on any level? And, and they said, I wish we talked more about the times in the Bible when God is angry. And I said, that makes you a party of one, because uh, most of us would like to end with the blessing part of that. But they were talking about it in terms of we sing these songs of the goodness of God, and yet we read stories like Jeremiah 29 in which God is getting angry, and there is some sort of standard of goodness that has not been met. And so um, my fear always with expounding upon these passages is we're going to read the passage, and someone in here, this is your first time in church, your first time with us, or your first time even hearing about God, and all you hear is that God is chasing people with 
famine and swords and plagues and, and hissing at you and things like that. So I, I want to make sure that we, that one, there's a lot of nuance to when there's like discipline and stuff in the Bible. Um, two, uh, the main point, keeping the main point the main point. So Jeremiah 29, 11, for surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. If we go one chapter later, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land I gave to their ancestors, and they shall take possession of it. I want you to know that the overall corpus, the overall theme, is one of restoration and reconciliation, of God moving people towards a, a spot of betterment, moving toward a spot of more faithfulness and, and a better community. Not the, main, the main point is not the punishment, that God is not out to get us. But when people are exiled in the Old Testament or when there is some sort of discipline going, the intent is always to bring restoration, is always to bring healing. There's always a promise, always a future, always a hope that is out there. Uh, and, and it's really a, a key part to know in this. And even so much that when Jeremiah in that chapter 30 is said, write this in a book, because the exile is said to take, it's going to take 70 years. And seven years is a long time to live in an uncomfortable situation where things might seem bleak or things might seem dark or things might seem bland or things might seem boring. Seven years is a long time. And we can, if you ever, you know, if you ever done something and somebody makes one negative comment for the 75 positive comments that happen, and you always focus on the negative comment. So when we look at 70 years, when we look at exile, when we look at uh, sword and famine and pestilence, right? That's the one comment, and we tend to focus in on that. And Jeremiah is to write it in a book so that when people are in the dark and people are uh, having a fuzzy experience with God, they can look at a book and they can recognize, no, the overall scheme of this is one of promise and restoration. The overall scheme of this is one of blessing. It's just a reminder that there are certain times in which we bring destruction upon ourselves. There are certain times in which we find ourselves in more of an exilic place, a place apart from God, because we're not doing the things that God has told us will bring the blessing upon us. And this is for the people, like Jeremiah is largely written to the people who are in exile because they're presumably the ones who have a harder time. They're the, presumably the ones who are feeling left out. Now, at the beginning of all of this, about four or five weeks ago, um, I told you how many Israelites, Jeremiah says, get exiled out of Judah. Um, does anybody remember the number? Pop tri trivia quiz here. So Jeremiah 52 is 4,600. So there are 4,600 Judites. It's the the whole nation of Israel has been divided into northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. So 4,600 Judites are exiled into Babylon, according to Jeremiah 52. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 14, it's 10,000. Um, so pick your source, according to the Bible there, of 4,600 versus 10,000. Most scholars would also say that those are generally the men who are counted. Kind of like the feeding of the 5,000 story, it's probably more like 10,000 or so, because there were women and there were children that were present there. This is probably just the men who were exported out, kind of the religious elite, the leaders, the priests. And so what is 4,600 or 10,000, probably is more like 15,000, 18,000, maybe even 20,000 that get exiled out. And when they're in exile, the messages of hope, the messages of restoration, even the message condemning the people who are back home, there is meant to be a hope packaged in these letters that are going to Babylon so that the people in, um, in exile do have the hope. But what's interesting is Throughout the past couple of weeks, you've heard that they're also instructed to seek the welfare and betterment of the very people that kept them, that took them prisoner. 
They're meant to build homes and have children and plant trees and, and sustain themselves for the 70 years, but also work like Daniel did and uh, build up the community around them. It's a very interesting call of what they're supposed to learn while they're in exile. They are supposed to be in a nation that is not theirs, yet work for the betterment of that nation. They are meant to be guests in a land that is taking them prisoner and yet work for the betterment of the people who took them prisoner. And there's a lesson of humility there. There's a lesson of faithfulness there. There's a lesson to be not of this world, but in this world. To be the people of God, but seek the betterment of the entirety of the people that God loves. And, and this is something that we largely know that the exiled Jewish people did. You can read through textual evidence of, of letters and things or, or books in the Old Testament that they presume or know were written after the exilic period that they grew in their faith. It was the exile that caused them to challenge some of their assumptions about God. And they, they come up with that uh, monotheism, essentially. If you've heard me talk about Genesis or Exodus, God was a God amongst many gods in that understanding of God. But after the exile, they understand God as the only God. And not only that, but God is open to not only the Israelites, but all people should follow God and all people should worship God. And it became more of a, the city on a hill, the nation that was supposed to proclaim God's name to everybody else. And it shows how the people who were in exile, the people who were uncomfortable, the people who had to face you know, they, they couldn't stay in their bubble, but they had to face their outer community with their faith and see what that, how that impacted them, how that changed them. Stay faithful, but also seek the betterment of that community. And it shows those people did the work, at least most of them. Most of those people did the work, and they were able to grow, and they were able to shape. They were able to become better, more faithful people because they didn't isolate themselves, but because they engaged with their faith in the real world. Now, another trivia question. What was the population of Judah of these maybe 18,000 people that left? No one's going to know that. I didn't know that. It was, I, so about 180,000, somewhere between 150,000 to 210,000 um, by all estimates in there, which means you do the math, a conservative estimate is that 10 to 15 percent of the population is all that got exiled. And I don't know about you, I, I grew up in church, and so I heard about the exile in Sunday school and kind of heard it preached every now and then. Even looking at it from how foundational and formational it is to Jewish people today uh, about what the exile means to them, I always assumed it was kind of a trail of tears kind of event where an entire nation was marched out into the wilderness of Babylon, and the remnant that existed was about 15 people living in tents trying to figure out their way in the world. And really what it was is 10 to 15 percent of the population gets put somewhere else as political prisoners. Meanwhile, there's 85 to 90 percent of the population that goes untouched. And they've got to pay taxes to Nebuchadnezzar and to Babylon. Sure, that's a big deal. But largely, the buildings they go visit, the way of life that they have, except for the temple being destroyed, everything is pretty much the same. And so the question in why is God mad at these people, God's not mad at the exiled people, why is God mad at the people who remained, is a really big question because they didn't see it that way. They thought, and this is how Jeremiah interprets the whole event, and, and largely the Old Testament interprets the whole event, is that the exile happened because Israel was not living inside of God's commandments. They were mistreating the poor. They were praying upon each other. They were worshiping other gods. They were bringing idols into the temple. That was the theological reason they understood for the exile. But the people back home that are lambasted in Jeremiah 29 or lambasted in Jeremiah 24, which is almost word for word the exact same thing, they don't see that. They don't experience any consequence. 
They're sitting over there and they're saying, oh my gosh, everybody else who left, they're the problem. And so they start getting really haughty. They start getting really proud of themselves. And they say, oh, well, they must have been the problem. They must have been the sinners. We're the ones who are okay. We're experiencing the blessing. God must love us just a little bit more. And I don't know if you've done your Bible study recently about how God feels about bragging, boasting, and egotistical people. Um, But I'll give you a few examples. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Leviticus, the alien who resides with you shall be to you as a citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. Then when they kept on questioning Jesus about this woman who was caught in adultery in John 8, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. God doesn't have a whole lot of nice things to say about those who act superior to others. The, The Bible is not full of stories of people who are perfect. The Bible is full of stories of people who are imperfect and found the grace of God or the touch of Jesus who enabled them and empowered them to be part of something where they were imperfect together and therefore stronger and better going out of that. And we see this in the example of Christ as Philippians 2 talks about the mind of Christ, that he humbled himself from in the heavens to take on physical form and not only just to walk with us, but to touch the lepers and heal the lame. And, and you know, when the Pharisees are mean to the, the you know, potential prostitute that runs in amongst them, Jesus lets her bathe his feet and anoint him because she is worthy to do that and to be in his kingdom as well. And ultimately we see the example of the cross taking our sin, taking our shame, and showing us the greatest act of love in humility when he very easily could have called that army of angels that they were challenging him to do. So the why is these kings like Hezekiah, who has been, is a puppet king from Babylon, who's been installed to rule over in the seat of David in Judah, But he gets so proud of himself, kind of like Saul gets proud of himself. And without doing something according to the Lord's vision, he starts making alliances with Egypt, trying to trump up his own name so that he can be the king that everybody would remember. And he would be the one that would be famous for liberating them from Babylon. Well, guess that doesn't end very well for him. Or then Hananiah, that prophet that I told you about a few weeks ago, who when Jeremiah is saying, nope, this is 70 years and it's going to be a long time, settle in, do what is good for the community around you. Hananiah comes and says, no, it's only going to be two years because I want to give you good news and because you're going to like me more. And he even says Nebuchadnezzar is going to be assassinated in, uh, in a previous chapter. And God doesn't like that either. Because God's got this vision of what needs to happen. God's got this uh, sense of justice that is going to happen. And it's not like Hananiah and Hezekiah are doing it for the betterment of the Israelite people. They're doing it because they want honor and they want praise. They want everyone to know that they are the super kings and they are the super prophets so that everyone will look up to them. It's like one group of powerful people left and another people filled the void and they did the exact same thing. Because they needed to be known and they needed to be better. And that seems to be part of the human condition. It reminds me of the story about two dentists around Halloween time. I know there's a lot of stories going around about dentists, so maybe you've heard this one before, but... Um, it was two dentists who lived in the same neighborhood, same community, generally got along great with everybody, got along with each other, um, and Halloween was coming around. And um, have, I don't know if you've ever met any of those people in the medical community who just need you to know they're in the medical community. 
Um, and maybe not just the medical community. It extends to lawyers and teachers. It ex- you know, there are pastors who just really need you to know that there are pastors. Or like TCU alumni who just really need you to know that they went to TCU and how good their football team is, for example. I mean, there are people who are just like absolutely need you to know how important they are or everything about them. And, and Dennis number one was kind of that guy. Like you couldn't have a conversation with Dennis number one without molars coming up or, you know, or some kind of dental jargon that was happening. And so um, Halloween comes around and Dennis number one is just infuriated with the idea that we are just loading kids' teeth up with baby Ruths and Butterfingers and all of the plaque and the sugar that comes along with that. And so the kids come up to Dennis number one's house, they knock on the door, they say, trick or treat. And Dennis number one comes out and joyful and excited. Oh, I'm so glad you are here to, t- to uh, receive what I've got for you. Here you go, puts it in the pumpkin and the kid looks it out, takes it out and it's like, dental floss? I just need to ask, how many of you have received like toothbrush or dental floss on Halloween before? I re- wow, that's a lot. There are a lot of terrible people in the world. <laughs> I remember getting a toothbrush as a kid, going into, going, into, like, going into a house, and there's nothing that kills Halloween more than when you go expecting something amazing and you get a toothbrush um, out of there. And, and so these kids got the dental floss and, you know, just... Walked away, thanks, I guess. And he's like, I hope you have the best Halloween ever, kids. They walk around. And, and Dennis, number one, notices, like, texting exists, social media exists. And so the line of people going to Dennis, number one's house, just they all just kind of start to skip over. We all have enough dental floss in our life. And what makes it worse is that Dennis, number two, is down the street. And Dennis, number two, is handing out king-size Snickers bars. And this is the house we all know and love, the people who really go all out. And so he's got this big line, big crowd, everyone's praising him. And um, so the next day, right, everything's cleaned up. All the kids are sick from all the candy they ate. And Dennis number one, Dennis number two are taking a walk in their neighborhood and they encounter each other. And Dennis number two says, you know, hey, how was Halloween? And Dennis number one says, it's the worst. It's always the worst. And Dennis number two says, I I don't see it that way. And Dennis number one says, how can you, how can you as a dentist, someone who holds dearly the values of dentistry and fighting gingivitis and all of the plaque combat that we are doing in our world. How can you subscribe to the evils of this holiday that ruin teeth? We're better than they are. We know more than they do. You should be ashamed of yourself. And Dennis number two is like, we're better than Halloween? We're better than this community festivity. And yeah, maybe the origins of it are kind of weird and wonky, but what is it today? It's an opportunity for kids to go and have an exciting night. Use their imaginations with costume. It's an opportunity for kids to go learn that they can trust their neighbors who they probably never met, right? Because they knock on a door for the first time and someone hands them candy and they learn that community is a good thing. They learn that their neighbors are nice people. They learn about the goodness of human beings. Even, you know, I know there's pranks and everything. And so Dennis number two is kind of like, I don't understand what's the problem here. I just wanted the community to have a really nice time and great, it's great job security for me in the future anyway. <laughs> and Dennis number one just can't get over. And, and what they learn in the conversation is that Dennis number one wasn't giving out dental floss because he was doing it for the betterment of those little children that were never going to go back and floss. He was giving away dental floss because he didn't want to subscribe to something he considered beneath him. He was giving dental floss away because he wanted everyone to know I am a dentist and you need to subscribe to everything that I would tell you to do because candy is evil and awful. 
And this is the attitude that the Israelites who are left behind take. This is the attitude of we are superior because we know more. And if you were exiled, then obviously we are the ones who are in God's blessing. And this is where I'm proud of us as a church. As far as I know, I'm proud of us as a church in the way that we exist in the community of being for the community, but still holding a different message than the community. And I really love this an example of the way that we use and let people utilize our building. And I know it's weird because at offering time, sometimes we make jokes about like when you're giving your money and offering to go toward the mission and ministry of God, you're most often not thinking about, well, we need lights or, or air condition or whatever that we might need. But I look back at who's used our building over this time, and it's like Young Men's Service League and National Charity League and um, uh, Camp Gladiator. The Lovejoy Fishing Team did our blessing of the boats out here. Um, there's a yoga group. I mean, the preschool PTA, the school board. I mean, just name your thing in the community, and they all know that they're welcome here. And it's this really fantastic uh, arrangement because they know that we're for the community. And, and the interesting story, I've told you this story before, but it's so great that um, there was a group that was wanting to use our facility several months ago. And they were coming to like look at a rent agreement um, over for the, the student center across the way, um, which at the time was inconvenient. So we ended up telling them no, but while we were in, the, in my office, we were going over rent details, we were going over vision, we were going over how this arrangement might work. And then we walked out there to look at the space and then uh, they said, well, we need to change this, and we need to change this. And I said, well, that's a little too much change. We're using this for our students. And, and eventually it didn't work out. And so that was 45 minutes in. We're walking back, and the guy looks at me, and he goes, so I, I'm just curious about something, if you'll, if you'll let me ask a question. I said, yeah, sure. And uh, he goes, you haven't asked me if I'm a Christian yet. I said, that's not in the lease agreement. Um, he goes, you should know that we're atheists. I said, okay, that's fine, you know. Um, well, it's not fine, but, you know, it's, you know, I'd like for it to be different, but I'm not, you know, going to push this on you. That's not our relationship here. Uh, if you'd like to know more, I'd be happy to share with you why I believe in Jesus. And they said, this is so weird. And I said, well, some people think Jesus is weird, but I think he's cool. And I said, no, no, not this. It's the arrangement that we've got going on here. Like, this is just unique. And, and what I learned, he was an immigrant to this country. He's been here about 15, 20 years, um, started businesses and all sorts of things. And he said, I've not encountered Christians, especially in Texas, who would be this nice to me. And what I was very proud of was not my relationship with him, because he was expecting like super Christian from the pastor. He was expecting me to be like, if you want to lease our space, you need to convert to Christianity and at the sword perhaps. And what I was super proud of is he says, well, I actually had met members of your church and they suggested we come talk to you. And so it wasn't just super pastor Christian, it was people from our church who had recognized that it doesn't matter who you are. We can do God's work together. We can be good neighbors together. We can be hospitable to one another. We're not in our isolated camp meeting on Sunday morning and looking out at the rest of the world and saying, yeah, we're so much better than you that we've all gotten together to tell ourselves how much better than you we are. And he talked about that he had listened to sermons online trying to like test out the waters of things. And he kept on hearing sermons that would condemn the outside world when three quarters of the Bible is self-reflective and looking at how Christians and Jewish people can do things better. The three quarters of the Bible is Jeremiah telling the people that remain, this is how you should do things better so that when the people who have learned how to be more faithful come back, you'll mesh well together in the way that you should do things according to the law that God has given you so that you can be a light to the nations. Three quarters of the New Testament is looking at Jesus who is talking to the religious elite and saying, no, 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 you're doing things 
wrong. And this guy had heard so many sermons that were condemning the outside world as opposed to what the Bible does is help correct us so that we might be a more faithful witness that people might want to be a part of something. Because when we sing a song about the goodness of God and then only preach the God who comes after with sword, pestilence, and famine, those two messages disconnect. They don't work together very well. But when we recognize that the message of chasing with sword, pestilence, and famine is meant for the people who are on the inside, it's meant for the people who remain, it's meant for the the majority of the community who still bears the name of God's chosen people, when we recognize that that is corrective, then maybe we can have the right mindset of following the example of Jesus or the way of the law that is more hospitable, it is more welcoming. It's looking at the atheist among us or whoever amongst us and seeing the image of God in that person as well, recognizing that, well, we don't want to be too busy too busy trying to be Christian that we forget to be Christian. I think this is the challenge for us is I feel like as a church community, I feel like on Sunday morning now we could use more greeters at all different hours. We could use more, a lot of things if you're ready to step up and, and make this place, you know, really hum. Um, we could use your help. But I feel like on Sunday morning we have a really welcoming atmosphere. I feel like we have a great atmosphere for people who drop in. I feel like we've got a welcoming atmosphere in the majority of things that we do. My question is, is, when we leave this place and we're still members of Creekwood United Methodist Church, we're still members of God's body, we're still Christians. On an individual basis, are we recognizing the humility that God calls us to? Are we still looking across the border, across to another country, to our family members and saying, well, at least it's not us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we trust that we have been blessed by you, not least a bit by the presence of your Son amongst us, who came to show us the way, the truth, and the life, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who has taken our sins, who has offered us eternal life, who has promised us uh, resurrection and good news, who has showed us the model of a community that picks up people off the side of the road and takes care of their injuries and unites a community of lepers so that they might be a full part of all that is going on. God, we thank you for the blessing of this witness and this Savior. But God, give us the courage that when those people come by our trunks for trunk or treat, we will engage them with the love of Christ. Give us the courage that when we are out in the sports fields and the band arenas and the schools and our business places, that we will not look down upon those whom we might see as lesser than, but we would look at them as our brothers and sisters because they are made in your image too. God, help us to not be a judgmental people. Help us to not be a boastful people. Help us to have pride in what you have done for us so that we might proclaim that message through our love as people will know we are Christians by our love. And so God, give us the courage, strength, and wisdom to be those people that you call us to be. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing.
Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.